Lord Jesus, we praise you as the Word made flesh, who came and dwelt among us. And John wrote, we've seen his glory as of the one and only, the only begotten from the Father. Lord Jesus, you're the one that we want to see. And you're the one we desire to worship. And I simply pray this morning that as we study your word, that you will move us one step closer. That you will clear our vision a little more. And allow us the privilege, Jesus, of walking beside you. Allow us the joy, Lord Jesus, of hearing your voice. And the wonder, Lord Jesus, of being vessels that you can use. Of being instruments in your hand. Tools from your toolbox, Father. People that are so in love with you, we cannot help but show you to the world around us. Motivate us, Lord. Write your word on our hearts. And may we be doers of your word, not hearers only. And be our teacher this morning. Holy Spirit of the living Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are almost finished with our study of the life of David. What? Russ has the announcement? Okay, we'll do that at the end. No, we're going to do them at the end. I had already started. I was on a roll, guys. Actually, I wasn't. So, Yeah, we'll come back to that at the end. Here we are at the end of 2 Samuel, and literally the end of the life of David. He'll, he'll spill over into the first chapter or so of 1 Kings, but it's, it's Dave on his deathbed. It's some last words he has for Solomon. We have that to come, but we're literally down to the last story of David's life that is recorded in Scripture this morning. Wednesday we're actually going to go back and finish up chapter 23, but this morning we're going to cover chapter 24. And I was doing the math, as I sometimes do, thinking through the books and the lives of the people that we've been blessed to study and see over the last four and a half years. And it's kind of cool to think about the fact that though we we joke about going through the Bible in a hundred years or less, we actually have covered ten books in the Old Testament and one in the new. We've, we've walked through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've gotten all the way down to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel. The birds have not prevailed. <laughs> and we've studied the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for all of this, it's been just remarkable, the people we've seen, and the places we've been, and the stories that we've read. Just for fun, I'd like to do this this morning. If you want to keep count in your own mind, I want you to think about just some of the people that we have seen and studied since the beginning of the bridge and since the beginning of our study through the Word. We've seen Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Seth and Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah. I'm skipping a few. We've seen Lot, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. We've seen the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed, you know, to Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and his wife Tamar. Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. We've seen little Benjamin, 
We saw how they all went down to Egypt, 70 in number, and after 400 years there, they grew, they increased to possibly as many as 3 million people. Now, how many people, how many names have I stated so far? Anyone keeping track? No? 33 so far. Then we get to Exodus, where we meet Moses. We met and studied the life of Moses, his brother Aaron, his sister Miriam. We saw the twelve spies as the people came to the land of of Canaan and they blew it big time. Of course, two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, were men of faith. And then we saw how after wandering in the desert for 40 years, two more were sent out and were protected in the house of Rahab the harlot. Now I mentioned Rahab and I also mentioned Tamar earlier because there are four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar and Rahab are two of them. You'll hear the other two in just a moment. That brings our total up to 39 people. Then we come to the era of the judges. 13 of them, 14 if you count Samuel. So we add Othniel, Ehud. Remember Ehud? with the left-handed sword stabs into the belly of Eglon and all this stuff came out great story Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech who was a false judge we read about Tola, Jair, Jephthah Ibsen, Elon, Abdon, and Samson and concluded out the book of the judges we saw Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz and then we followed that with the last of the judges and the first of the prophets Samuel Now someone might say, well, I thought Moses was a prophet. Well, he was, but Samuel was the one through whom God introduced the era of the prophets. Where he moved away from theocracy and away from talking to the people through the priests. And he said, I'm going to start sending prophets because you're not going to the priests. And you don't want me as your king. You want a human king, so I'm going to still need to get a word to you. Samuel was the first of these men. His mother was Hannah, who gave him to the Lord. And Samuel grew up serving the Lord in the tabernacle. By my count, that brings us up to 57 people. And again, there are many that we're skipping over here. Samuel comes along and he anointed Saul as Israel's first king. The people's choice. Saul had several sons, among whom was the young man Jonathan. Then along came David and his wives, many of them, including Bathsheba. You see, Ruth, Bathsheba, Rahab, and Tamar, all four were in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we're about to get into the life of Solomon. We've already been introduced to young Solomon as a child of David and Bathsheba. By actual names, and again there were countless others, I total 62 different lives that we've been touched by, that we've seen, that we've watched in relationship to God. Paul says all these things have been written for us, that we can see by their example how we should and how we should not live. 1 Corinthians 10. But of course there's one more. The centerpiece of all these stories, the one about whom the entire word is written, Jesus Christ. For if you go through as many books as we have, these ten books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and have not seen Jesus, then I submit to you, you have not read these ten books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Because this book is all about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7 Quoting Psalm 40, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. It's all about me. It is the history of Jesus Christ. It is the life of Jesus Christ portrayed before us. It is the indication of the arrow to Jesus. It's all about Him. I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me to do your will, O God. 
62 people, 63 including Jesus, and again, all the side wives and associations and relationships and, and things mentioned, we, we haven't even talked about those this morning. There are many, many, many people, and we can continue counting all morning long as to who we've seen and how we've been touched by the Word. And it's fun, at least for me, maybe I'm a little weird, but it's fun to count up the books and the chapters and the names and the stories that we've seen so far. But I realized something this week as we come to this final story of David's life. Counting can be a dangerous thing. Even in silly little ways. For I consider the distance we've traveled in Bible study over the years, and if I think too much about it, my heart starts to puff up. If I go to our website and I look down the list of of teachings that are on there, my pride kind of goes, all right, accomplished something here. We've we've done something. It's so easy to look at the Bridge Christian Fellowships and think about the number of people and think about ministries growing up and the steady expansion of things and how God is working and look at all of that. It's very easy to say, look what we've done. When in reality, we really haven't done a thing. But the Lord has done marvelous things. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And we've got to be people who are willing to check our pride at the door, confess it before the Lord, and cry out, Father, forgive me and remind me it's not about me. For the moment we step outside of that type of humble approach to the Father, we find ourselves in trouble. We start counting up all the things that we've done, and it's a dangerous place to be. I want to share with you all this morning that the 20 acres of land over on Troxel Road that we've been prayerfully pursuing will be owned free and clear by the bridge at the end of April, which is very cool. I'm excited about that. At our last shepherd's meeting two weeks ago, we made a decision to go ahead and buy the land outright without incurring any debt. And we can do this because of the faithfulness and generosity of this fellowship. And we can say, look what we've done. Look at how we have saved up and planned ahead. And what wise thinking that was. And it was wise thinking. And it was good planning. And we could take credit for it. But you know what God did? He came along and He said, great, I appreciate your faithfulness. But I'm going to take care of it. And he has provided a way not only for us to own the land, but we will own it outright. And we're not going to spend a cent of all the money that's been saved in tithes and offerings. The land will be ours free and clear because the Lord has provided a way. And I love that. I love the fact that, you know, we scrimped and saved, but now we can't honestly say it's because of our plans that we own the land. It's because of the Lord. He has stepped in and said, okay, great, thanks for saving, but I got it covered. And we have been handed that land. This is what the Lord does. It is never about human accomplishment. It's about what the Lord has done. It's about who Jesus is. It is about a love relationship with Him. Because for all our counting and accounting, that's what really counts. That's the thing that matters. Our relationship with God the Father. Barb just said it this morning. We were sitting around the piano and, and talking about these things. And the truth is, if there's any one thing that was done right here... And we take no credit for that. It's the fact that God has waited long enough for us to realize it just is about Him. That the focus is Jesus, not on building a big church. I I mentioned that when I thought about the whole land and building thing, four years ago, that's what I wanted. 
Four years ago, I wanted to see a church here on North Whidbey Island, a, a, a property and, and building, and, and I got real excited about that. Now, I'm like, great, if that's the tool God wants to use. It's taken me four years to get there. But in these four years, God has said over and over, look at me, look, hey, look at me, keep your eyes on me, watch me, it's about me. I'll take care of the other things. You just keep your eyes on me. You know, I want to pray one more time that we continue to do that. Let's bow. Father, as we go forward with these things, Lord, don't let our eyes stray from you. Don't let us get caught up or excited about the building of man. May we only and always be fixed on you, Lord Jesus. And you accomplish what you do. Father, we pray unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so we don't want to build this house. We pray, Jesus, you will build your church. Both little C and capital C, Lord, you will be the builder of your great kingdom. May we just watch it happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to look at this study because, interestingly, this is exactly what our study is about this morning. It's about counting. Four things to jot down. I'm going to give you a quick outline. You can follow this if you want to jot it down now. I'll refer to it as we go through. But four things that we'll follow this morning in this last story of David. And it's interesting to me, this is the last one. You might say, well, duh, Rick, it's the last thing that happened to David, so of course it's the last one. Yeah, but, but the application here is, is fascinating. Four things to notice. The problem, number one, the problem... Number two, the punishment. Number three, the pestilence. And number four, the purchase price. The problem, the punishment, the pestilence, and the purchase price. And we'll follow this through in our study. The problem, first of all. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, 2 Samuel. Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does the Lord, why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped at Eroer, on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad toward Jatzer. And they came to Gilead, to the land of Tatim Hadshi. And they came to Danjean, around to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went down out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the swords. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Altogether, that counts as 1.3 million fighters. A military 1.3 million strong. Now, verse 10 tells us, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Number one, the problem was in the numbers. 
The problem was in the numbers. David is 70 years old. He's had a long, illustrious, sometimes infamous career. And by the time he takes this census, the number of warriors in the IDF, (laughs) Israeli Defense Forces, it's now reached 1.3 million, which is up from 601,730 when they entered the land back in Numbers chapter 26, verse 51. Which is a total increase over these years of 698,270 fighting men. That's a huge increase. They have now more than doubled the size of their armies. These are the men David could muster to war. But there's a problem in the numbers. And there's a couple of questions we have to ask to understand what's the big deal here? What's the problem? Number one, the question is, what is wrong with taking a census? After all, if you compare David taking a census here, that's what the book of Numbers is about. Numbers begins and ends with God telling the Israelites to take a census. Count up all those who can fight over the age of 20. I want a census of all those men. He commanded that it be done. But after the fact, we see David's heart troubling him. It's, it's hurting him because once the census is taken, David's conscience begins to rub him the wrong way. He knows that he's sinned. Furthermore, you got Joab coming along. Joab, that brute, the commander of his army, a great fighting man, but a brutal man in his life. He tries to stop David from doing this count in the first place. It's one of the very few times, a rare moment of restraint and wisdom from the person of Joab. Where he actually says, Dave, don't do this. My king, why would you go about counting the people and all the commanders of the army? They were against it. What's the deal? What's the problem with numbering? Well, to answer that, we have to ask another question. And that is, who incited David to this obviously questionable act? Who caused David to want to do this? Verse 1, go back and look at it. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Why? We don't know. Something's going on. We don't know what it is. The Lord is angry with Israel. So remember this. We'll come back to it. Something's rotten in Denmark. Or Israel. Something's not right. And God is angry with the people here. But you may note this. And depending on what Bible translation you're reading. You read that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it incited David. Some translations say he. He incited David. The translations that, that read he are... Not really correct. Well, they kind of are, but they're not. They're not correct in that what those translations indicate is that God is angry with Israel and so God incites David to sin. Does the Lord incite people to sin? Not according to his word. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one when he is tempted, he's tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So to find out who the he is, and there is a he here, there is an insider, we go over to the parallel story in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, that says the following, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now if you read those two without a whole lot of critical thinking, you say, well, wait a minute, in this one it says the Lord incited, and then in this one it says Satan incited, so which is it? The Bible's in contradiction. And that's not the point, and that's not true. The Lord did not incite David. Yes, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. 
And David, in response to that, was wide open for temptation. And Satan slides in, and Satan tempts. This is important to understand, gang, for sometimes in life, we can be moved by a righteous anger. We can be upset about something in a very spiritual way and have the absolute wrong response. I can be righteously moved and sin in response to it. I can be absolutely right and still do the wrong thing. If you've ever been a parent, you know what I mean. (laughs) You can be right in your judgments, in your anger toward your children for something that they've done, and you can react and respond in a sinful, wrong way. And that's what's going on here with David. He is moved by the Lord. He, He is a man after God's own heart. God is righteously angry with Israel. David sees this, and he says, Yeah, why is this going on? I'm angry too. And at first, I believe David's anger would be absolutely right on because God is angry. But David's emotionally stirred up and Satan is the he who slips in and incites David to take action in the wrong direction. That's what we see going on here. That's why we keep praying for wisdom and patience and discernment in our lives. It's why we don't trust our feelings and our emotions to lead us. And what Bill just read... It's why we have the Word. It's why we continually be people of the Word, learning to listen to the voice of God. Turn in your Bibles just real quickly here to the book of Proverbs, chapter 2. Proverbs 2. Just on a little side note. Because I I read this and, and, and... Putting together 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 and the fact that God was angry, David gets angry, and Satan incites him, it it freaked me out a little bit. Because this whole idea of being righteously angered and then caught up in sin, I think, (laughs) what hope do we have as human beings to, to act in the right way when our heart is right but we're led to do the wrong thing how can we know how can we discern how can we truly be wise in these last days and the Lord led me to Proverbs listen to what Solomon we believe wrote Proverbs 2 verse 1 my son if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you make your ear attentive to wisdom incline your heart to understanding for if you cry for discernment Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. He alone preserves, and He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Verse 11, discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Wisdom, discernment that will guard our souls from taking those wrong directions. When we move gain by emotions and by feelings, without discernment, without restraint, without the spiritual fruit of self-control, we set ourselves up for the it factor. 
the it factor. It incited David. Satan incites, moves in, sneaks in there, and catches us off guard. You may say, okay, great, Rick, but what does all this have to do with taking a census? Again, David is upset because he sees that Israel is upsetting the Lord. But rather than call for national repentance, David calls for a flexing of his military might. Rather than saying to the country, let's get on our knees before the Lord and let's get right before Him, what David says, let's see how strong my army has become. Let's see how much power I have. Maybe we can scare the people of Israel and Judah into submission. Maybe I can, once I know what the numbers are and the numbers are going to get out there, then the people will be afraid as I say, knock off what you're doing. The strength of my might, the power that I've got in my flesh... And that right there is the sin of David. That's the sin of the census. My pride over his power. What I can do, what I have accomplished, my strength. But the Bible's clear. My strength does not depend on the might of my flesh, the size of my army, or my church. My strength depends only on the power and presence of the Spirit of Christ within me. I believe the Lord wants to continue to grow the Bridge Christian Fellowship, not only here on North Whidbey Island, but regionally, nationally, even globally. He has given vision for that. Not just the involvement we have in missions now, but far beyond that. We had last night a wonderful time with with a, a group of parents who have adopted children, and we were talking about what about the ministry of adoption that goes far beyond where we are right now. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be awesome literally to have an adoption ministry grow up out of this church, helping people adopt orphans and kids out of other countries, bringing them into Christian families and homes. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Is that in the table on the table? Is that in your plans, Lord? Do you, do you have that for us? I don't know. But wouldn't it be great? I believe the Lord is opening doors to these types of things all the time, but we've got to always remember our size, whether great or small, is not what counts. Whether there's 20 people in a living room or 300 people in a barn or more than that in the future or less than that in the future is not what matters. What matters is the power of Jesus Christ, His Spirit in this place. His power in our lives. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4, verse 6. Joab said to David in verse 3, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see. May He increase you. May you grow. May you be strong. And talk about the promise of big numbers. Go back to Abraham a thousand years earlier. And the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 22:17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. How many stars are in the sky? Uncountable? We don't know. How many grains of sand are on the seashore? Innumerable. In fact, it said if you grab a clump of sand in your hand, you're holding an estimated 400 billion granules in your hand. And God said, I'm doing something bigger than that. That's the promise. God can bring in the numbers if He so desires. God can increase the strength if He so desires. But David says, I'm going to flex my power. 
I'm going to show off my military might. I'm going to count on my strength over this people Israel. It was pure pride. And that's the problem with the numbers. The problem when we begin to count up all the things that we've done, all the things that we've achieved, when we enter into counting like David, it's pure pride. Number two, the punishment. The punishment is the crime. Watch this. Verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose one for yourself of them, which I will do to you. Not a bad idea. There's a little parenting strategy there. I'm going to give you three choices of your punishment. You decide it's one of these three things. And Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence. Choice number three. He sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It's enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord, verse 17, when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The punishment fit the crime? Are you nuts? One guy has a sin of pride here. He opens up the Excel spreadsheet and God sends a pestilence? How is that fair? Doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? Now as we come to understand what God values in His economy. God values humbleness. The Lord hates pride. He hates pride in the heart of man. Isaiah 2 verse 11 says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. James 4 verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And don't think for a moment, gang, that God hates pride because it threatens him. Don't get caught up thinking, you know, what's the deal? I'm a little proud of myself. God can't handle that. That is not the point. The thing our pride threatens more than anything else is our desire for Him. And that's the danger in it. My pride threatens my desire to be closer to the Lord. The number one reason why people reject God in this world today and yesterday is pride. It's pride. 
is people saying, as I just was talking with Joe Phillips yesterday, he was talking about some guys at work who are just really good people and it is insurmountable or seemingly when someone says, I'm a good person. I, I, it's great you got your church thing going on. I'm a good person. I'm good enough. You know what that is? It's pride. It's pride. If nothing else, maybe you are a good person, but sitting there in your own goodness is pride. I don't need God because I've got it together. I've got it down. Pride. And the Lord hates pride. Because through pride we delude ourselves into thinking that we are strong enough. That we are good enough. And the day is coming, the Bible says very clearly, when we will discover how not good we really are. How unprepared we truly are. How weak and powerless we really are. That day is approaching. And so the Lord says, now, don't be prideful, because if you're prideful, you're going to think it's your strength that will get you through, and it's not. Be humble, because then, what will you do? You rest completely on my strength, on my power. And when that day comes, and you say, Lord, I'm weak, I'll say, I know, I got you covered. It's my power that has you here. The punishment game fits this crime. This crime. David took pride in numbers, so what did God do? He whittled down the numbers. You might notice that 70,000 men of Israel, it wasn't women and children that died in this pestilence, it was men, fighting men of the army. David said, I want to know how many men I have to fight. And God said, you just lost 70,000 because of your pride. Yeah, but 70,000 innocent people still. 70,000 innocent men, though they may be in the army, 70,000 of them for one man's sin still seems like too much. Remember, we know the Lord was already angry with Israel. So there's something else going on here as well. And because of that, we can be assured that God's justice is perfect. That the punishment that was for David was very likely for these 70,000 other men as well. God's already upset. And also remember this. That we never sin in a vacuum. And the further up you are in leadership, the more your sin will impact people around you. Elliot Spitzer, do I need to say any more? If you've been watching the news, the governor of New York, who fell this last week, and dozens upon dozens of people are going to be affected by this. Because the man stood in leadership. We've seen this happen time and time again. We see it happen in churches when a pastor falls to some kind of sin, how it devastates churches. How in a position of leadership, in a job, when a man falls, how sometimes entire companies will crumble because of it. As in the Enron scandal, we see over and over and over that the more a person has in terms of leadership, the greater the fallout of his sin on those around him. And David is no exception. King of all Israel. Well, when the king of all Israel sins, all Israel is impacted and affected by that sin. And the punishment fit the crime. It may well have fit the crime of the people themselves. We don't know for sure. All we have really to see here is what the Lord has given us to see in this story and understand. But let me give you a little Bible study note. Rather than argue or debate the unknowns in Scripture, let me encourage you to take the word at face value within the very biblical context of God's love. The Bible tells us again and again, God is merciful and just. He is a loving God. We know that is the backdrop of every single thing that happens. Sometimes people come to Scripture and they get upset about something like this because they forget about the backdrop. 
Or they try and figure out, well, there are things not here, and, and that really bothers me. Well, God's only given us what He wants us to know of this story. He's given us a focus. We go to the focus of 70,000 people died, and God's saying, that's not the focus of the story. The issue is pride. The issue is David's decision to do what he shouldn't have done in the first place. Don't miss the fact that David also asked the Lord to choose the punishment. Which I think is really interesting back in verse 14. After given the three choices, David said, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. Man's judgments are always going to be wrong. David doesn't even trust his own judgment. He doesn't go, well, let's see. Seven years of famine. Three months of fleeing from my enemy. Three days of pestilence. Hmm, which one should we go to? He says, I can't even choose. You're the father. And I know your judgment will be right. And it was. The punishment fit the crime. So the problem was in the numbers. The punishment fit the crime. Number three, the pestilence. The pestilence needed a sacrifice. Verse 18 So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunia, the Jebusite. So David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen uh, for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for his wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, however, the king said to Aruna, No. No, I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. The pestilence needed a sacrifice. The pestilence always needs a sacrifice. Our sin and the fallout of our sin always needs a sacrifice. And the obvious connection here is simply that Jesus became our sacrifice to check the pestilence of sin that would destroy our lives. Oh, we could do a whole sermon just on that point alone. How the pestilence deserves a sacrifice. How the communion we just shared together and the blood and the broken body of Christ became for us the sacrifice on the altar of the cross of Calvary. But here again in the last great story of David's life, we see and understand why David is called a man after God's own heart. Reread verse 24. The king said to Aruna, No, I will surely buy it for you from buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Some might say, oh, it's a big deal. So we bought a field for the sacrifice. Listen, because David did this little thing, God did a huge thing. And that's always the way it is. I do the little things. God does the big things. I just show up. God provides the miracles. I offer what little I have. God makes it grow. It's fish and loaves theology, gang. 
I give my sack lunch. God feeds 5,000. I say, Lord, I, I believe you. He saves my life and countless others. I do the little things. God does the great. And we need to understand that faith is expressed not so much in great acts of heroism and mission and conquest, but in small moments of integrity, unseen quiet trust, and pure relationship with the Lord. This is something we completely miss in the church. We're looking for the fantastic and the heroic and the great acts of faith. And God is so pleased when someone decides not to steal a pin from work. (laughs) Little acts of integrity. God is so pleased when a husband takes a step and just does something kind for his wife that no one's ever going to know about. Maybe not even his wife. Small acts of integrity. Moving in the love of Jesus where no one knows it's going to happen. Sharing with someone in such a way they don't even know it's you. Small acts. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord of my God, which cost me nothing. Jesus loves that. God loves that. It's investing yourself in Him. Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus marveling at just such an offering. Mark 12, 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And by the way, there's no judgment on that. A lot of times pastors will go to this passage and they'll say, see the rich people putting in their large sums, right? You know, I mean, down with the rich. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, we're seeing the reality here. Those who had it were given it. That's a good thing. But it says, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. Don't miss, it's not the fact that she put in two cents that made it so precious. It's the fact that she put in everything she had. It's the fact that for that little widow lady, it hurt to give. It cost her to give. That's the issue. Not rich versus poor. It's how much you're willing to give and trust in the Lord. She would feel the pinch of her offering immediately. Whereas those who are wealthy coming in and and giving, they were given to the Lord. Praise God. But they weren't giving out of, they were giving out of surplus. I've got it to give. I'm going to give it. Well, great. Way to go. Did you feel it the next day? Did it even cause you to to skip a beat the next time you sat down to pay your mortgage and write your bills? Or did you not even miss it? And that's the point Jesus is making. She would feel this. When you give out of your surplus, you say, you don't feel it. It's easy to do. Now, now don't lose me here because I'm not talking about money this morning. It's very easily, in fact, it almost was going to be a big tithing message. It doesn't have to be that. David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And this, I believe, is talking about the cost of discipleship. How much in my life am I willing to step out for the Lord and it cost me? Financially, sure, but I'm talking about in other ways. Maybe the fact that you're willing to stand up at work and say, look, I'm a Christian, so please don't talk like that. That might cost you some relationships. That might cost you and then other people around you go, (laughs) whatever, sorry. And make fun of you from time to time. I think about a conversation I had months ago with a police officer over in, in Anacortes, a good friend of mine. 
who was being constantly derided because when people cussed around him in, in the police force, he would ask them not to. And they called him Jesus Boy and made fun of him. That cost him something to take a stand for what he believed. Jesus said in Matthew 7.22, please don't miss this, we've read it before, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now you hear that and you might say, well, is Jesus saying these acts of ministry are lawlessness? No. The pride behind them is. The pride that stirs them is lawlessness. Look at me, Lord. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I have accomplished and count me into your kingdom. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry, do I know you? All these great things you were doing, was that out of a relationship with me or was that out of your own pride? Gang, the most impressive thing about David's life is not the size of the giants that he killed. It's not the number of armies that he drove out, the number of battles he won, the number of acres that he increased Israel's borders to, and certainly not the number of fighting men in his army. That's not what's fantastic about David's life. What's most important about David, what's most impressive, is the love relationship he had with God. He just loved the Lord. And even in his moments of sin, he still loved the Lord. He says, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I won't do it. Arunah the Jebusite is offering everything to David here. Take it all. Not only the threshing floor, but the wood for the threshing. And take the cows and use the whole deal. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. And David says, no, I will pay for it. I have to feel this one. And listen, because David was willing to do a seemingly little thing in paying the full price for this field because he refused to skimp or borrow or take it for free God does a huge thing here number four in your notes the purchase price the purchase price resulted in worship the purchase price resulted in worship the purchase price of the threshing floor and the oxen was 50 shekels of silver that would be a bag of silver weighing about one and a half pounds but if you read over the, again, parallel story in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 25 tells us that David went on to buy the entire surrounding property for 600 shekels of gold. That would be a bag of gold weighing about 15 pounds. So what was the huge thing God did? If you travel with us to Israel, you'll see the exact location of the threshing floor of Aruna. It's called the Temple Mount. That's the land David bought the land where the temple itself would be erected by his son Solomon. The land where the temple itself would stand and worship wouldn't just happen on that one day of sacrifice, but would happen for a thousand years of sacrifice and offering and worship to the Lord. Because David said, I won't take it for free. God did an amazing thing. Look over in First Chronicles chapter 21. I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 22. 22 and verse 1. After this had all happened and he purchased the land, it tells us, verse 1, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David's standing there on the threshing floor of Aruna. He looks around and he says, This is it. This is God's house. This is where the temple is going to happen. This is where it will be built. 
Verse 2, So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel. And he sent stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. And David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps. And more bronze than could be weighed. And the timbers of cedar logs beyond number. For the Zidonians and and Tyrians had bought large quantities of cedar timbers to David. And David said, My son Solomon is young and young and inexperienced, but the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. And so David made ample preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. That's what happens in a love relationship. David will never see the temple. At least not in his life. He would never see the temple built. But he poured himself into it. He would not give to God that which cost him nothing. He poured himself into the building of the temple. And after he died, this great place of worship was erected on the temple mount. And that's what happens in a love relationship. Listen to this. Love always demands a cost. Wait a minute, I thought Sting saying free, free, love is free. Except then free. Isn't love a free thing? Love is always freely received, but it also always costs the giver something. That's not love otherwise. For me to say I love my wife is one thing. For me to act it out is going to cost me something. It means I'm going to spend the time emptying the dishwasher when I'd really rather be doing something else. Alright, that's a silly little example. It's the little things, gang. In a love relationship with God, it's those little moments that no one knows about that matter the most. Love always demands a cost. It always costs the giver something. And love is a measure of the heart. What you give, what you're able and willing to give, how much you're willing to sacrifice for yourself indicates the amount of love that you have. The way we give is a clear and obvious indicator of the love we have for the person to whom we are giving. And giving is a heart issue. And we're the ones who make it a hard issue. That's tough to think about giving. Once again, I'm not just talking about finances here. It's hard to think about that extra time or that resource that I've got. That's that's tough. We make it tough. It's not tough. How much do you love the Lord? Because the amount to which I love the Lord will be clearly affected or seen in, in what I give and how I give. Faith without works is dead. James says, show me your works, I'll show you faith. Not because works buy your way into heaven, but works prove that you do trust God. Your actions, your behavior, your investment of your life proves whether or not what you say you believe is what you believe. I love God. Show me. Prove it. Well, prove it how? Don't give to the Lord that which costs you nothing. It is so easy to come sit here on Sunday morning. That's not hard to do. It's really not that hard to get ourselves out of bed, shower, brush your teeth, I appreciate that, deodorant, the whole thing, and get here. It's not that hard to do. This is not a big sacrifice of your time. Give the Lord that which costs you something. The question in any kind of giving is where is it coming from? Jesus said three times in John 21 to Peter at the end of his life, said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I like you a lot, Lord. 
And Jesus says, well then, tend my lambs. He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I really like you. Then tend my sheep. Jesus said, Peter, do you like me? Yeah, I I like you. Good, now we're on the same page. (laughs) And Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Where is my giving coming from? Is it coming from a heart of pride to bear myself up before God to show my strength in numbers? Or is it coming from a heart of love? And don't ever forget, God stopped the plague of my sin by paying full price. It cost God everything. It cost Jesus the blood that ran in His veins. And there is no question as to how much God loves us. No question at all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much do you love the Lord? That was the point that David got to when he stood there on the threshing floor of Aruna. How much do I love the Lord? I love Him for a cost to my life. Whatever the cost, I will love Him. Let's pray together. Well, I guess I'm asking this morning for each of us for conviction. Can we say truly with David, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That I will feel what I give. That I will be affected by it. That I'm not going to go for the cheap and skimpy way of receiving grace. Lord, I want to be among those who give it up for you. Lord, we don't want to be a fellowship that just sit around impressed with all those who go. Impressed with those who give. Impressed with those who do great things. I pray that moment by moment, every day, we will be those who live at cost to ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. Recognizing the great cost that you paid. As David was a man after your own heart, Father, we pray again, make us people after your own heart. People who are willing to give up everything we have for the sake of your kingdom. And more importantly, Lord, for the sake of being in a love relationship with you. If you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to pray and receive Jesus. And ask Him to be Lord and Savior. Not Savior only, but Lord as well. And you can do so, you can begin that relationship by praying with me. Lord Jesus... I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I'm not as good as I thought I was and I need your forgiveness. I believe and accept, Lord, that you went to the cross for my sins. I believe you rose on the third day. And I ask you to come and to be my Lord and my Savior from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.